Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today is Matthew Speyer. Matt is the owner of Satellite Investigations in New York City. He's the first vice president of the Aldenese and serves as the Region 2 Director of NCISS. Matt is the creator of InvestigatorsToolbox.com, an online networking, learning, and resource community for investigative professionals. He also hosts PI Perspectives, a weekly webcast geared towards investigations. Thank you for joining me today, Matt. Thanks for having me, Lee. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I think we have some really fun topics. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about PI investigations related to plaintiff personal injury and accident site photography. These are two things I have never worked on, so I am very eager to learn more. But before we jump into that, I really just like to know, did you always plan to be an investigator? So here's the thing. I was a terrible student in high school. I, I, I lived in owner shop. I had an old Mustang, like a a 73 Mach 1 Mustang, and I spent all my time there, and my grades were terrible. The only thing I really liked doing was social studies. And when it got to the point of, am I going to college, my guidance counselor actually asked me if I was going to college. I'm like, yeah, no thanks to you, dude. Uh, So (laughs) to me, it was like criminal justice just made sense because I loved history, and I ended up going to John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. Okay. Very cool. So after you went there, what, I mean, what were your next steps? Yeah. So I did some internships while I was there uh, for the department of investigation, which is kind of like the uh, internal affairs for everything other than NYPD in New York. And uh, I had a job lined up with them. They really uh, liked the work that I did. I worked in their special investigation unit and I learned how to do wiretaps and set up video cameras uh, I, I worked in their corrections division where I, I was one of the people that did the data entry for the gang database that they started. So uh, it was very new <laughs> back in the early 90s. They started actually tracking the gangs. Um, but the city went on a hiring freeze and um, they had to rescind their job offer. And uh, I basically took the first job I could get, which was for six bucks an hour as a reference checker for a retail investigation company. Uh, I held that position for two hours before I got promoted to a field investigator and uh, ended up becoming director of operations for that company. I worked there for about three years. Um, so you mentioned that you learned how to do wiretaps and, and set up cameras and things like that. And when I think back to my internship with the FBI, I got to do really cool stuff. But man, I wish I had paid attention to the tech. Like they had a tech agent who did all kinds of awesome things. And you know, I just didn't think that I would need to know those things. That is like my one regret is that I didn't learn more about the gadgets. So yeah, I was doing that stuff in like 1993 or 92, 94. And the technology was definitely different. (laughs) Back then it was a lot more bulkier, but uh, it was definitely very cool. Yeah, so cool. Okay, so when did you start your company? Uh, 2005. So what happened was I was working for a personal injury attorney beforehand. Uh, I'd worked for him for about four years and he wanted me to become an attorney. And I really considered it till I saw how much it was going to cost to go to law school. And uh, I took the path of least resistance and wrote a, uh, a business plan to take a loan to start a business. In fact, the only reason I got that loan is because I had money from my wedding in my bank account. So they wanted to see all my assets. They gave me a $35,000 <laughs> loan and I paid for my wedding literally two weeks later. Later. So, oh, wow. Best shell game ever. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Really cool. Um, but yeah, so 2005, I started off on my own. I hired my first employee in 2007. And right now, I have like five uh, employees working for me. 
and like another four or five there per diem. Okay, that's cool. So like contract? Um, yeah, yeah. It's a ten ninety nine uh, stuff, and then you know um, uh, some other. Sometimes you need to to pull on relationships and things like that. So you know it's not necessarily ten ninety nine because I'm picking up <laughs> whatever I'm paying them. So uh, yeah, it, it, one of those deals. It's all on who you know sometimes, right? Yeah. So um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. What is your kind of favorite size team to work with after all these years? Do you have a favorite? Yeah. I mean, I, my model, the way, I always had a plan. Like I don't want to be that company that has 70 employees or anything like that. I think that's just, you know, more money, more problems. Um, I've <laughs> yeah. always sold myself as being a boutique firm uh, and that you're getting hands-on, but I'm also finding myself that I don't want to be as hands-on anymore and I want to step back. So I, I think the right size in, in our industry is probably somewhere around four or five. Uh, and, and they got to be really good people too, uh, that you can count on to, to do it. They essentially have to be a carbon copy of you, but not having to worry about, you know, payroll or anything like that. Yeah. I, I have recently decided that my kind of dream team size is six and, um, like not, not new high, like, uh, entry level. So I would agree with that. Smaller team. Yeah. It just gives you better, you know, better control over quality. And I got to find, like, I find that I replace a lot of investigation companies that get too big. So if I'm taking over an account, it's because the quality of service is nine times out of 10. If I'm taking over an account from a law firm, it's because the guy they were using beforehand is not doing the job that he used to do. And Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10, it's because they got too big. Yeah. Yeah. Great observation and kind of what I've been noticing lately. Uh, But then at the same time, you know, Sometimes I think, oh man, should I have stayed like this one person firm? But, you know, the cases that, and and I think there's a niche for that for sure, but the cases that I tend to be drawn to, you just need more people. You just have to have a few more hands, you know? And so that's what's been working for me anyway. Yeah. That small team. Yep, definitely. So um, when we discussed kind of your area of specialty, uh, and like I mentioned earlier, I haven't really had anybody on the show to talk about plaintiff personal injury um, cases or um, accident site photography. So would you kind of just explain the types of assignments that you receive on these types of cases on on the plaintiff's personal injury cases and what do they entail? Uh, just kind of a big picture. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because you would think that fraud wasn't related to any of that stuff. It, it really isn't, but it kind of is. So basically mm-hmm. what we're hired to do is we're hired right at the get-go, if somebody has an accident and they call a lawyer and they tell them the facts of the accident, the lawyer will then call us and say, go meet with these people, have them sign our retainer. And then I want you to work up the case, go to the site, uh, investigate what happened, um, interview witnesses, uh, take photos, really get me the lay of the land, find, find out the who, what, when, where, how, why I want to know all that stuff. So by the time I'm negotiating with the insurance carrier. I've got leverage because we figured everything out already, right? So that, that is really the genesis of, of my business model. You know, get in and get out really quickly. Um, where the fraud comes in is, you know, you've got people that may have faked an accident, you know? And, and there's a lot of that going around in New York uh, these days, <laughs> Brooklyn and the, those natures where, where you, you have these medical facilities, you know, that are, are like fraudulently processing no-fault claims and things like that, right? So, you know, meeting somebody and really sizing them up. So like, not only are we a salesperson for the firm because we're telling the person, hey, sign this retainer, this firm is great, but we're also sizing up their story of, of, of what happened, right? And 
you know, sometimes like they'll say things like, mm, that doesn't really line up. Like I had a, a, a case I was investigating once and the person had claimed that they had been stopped and making a left-hand turn to cross over um, a major road. I guess it was probably two lanes with a, uh, a double yellow line, but it had the, you had the, you were allowed to make a left turn. It was like they had that turning lane in it. And uh, I interviewed a person and they had horrible injuries and it looked like a really, really great case. Well, everything was great until I showed up at the auto yard to, to photograph the vehicle and the speedometer was stuck at 45. So basically what happened when that impact happened, <laughs> the instrument panel kind of locked in as what happened. I'm like, yeah, this person was not stopped to make a left. You know, they were going, it was a head on collision. They were going 45. Um, so, you know, like you have stuff like that. So you have these instances where you do come across fraud, even though you're not, you're not there to, to, I guess, uh, for, on behalf of an insurance company, you're there on behalf of the person who may be taking the case and they want to, you, they want to know that, Hey, this is not legitimate. You don't even bother. Right. Cause we do get that from time to time. Yeah. So you're investigating what happened. So fact finding, but then also, uh, yeah, kind of gathering facts to help your client, the attorney decide if they even want to take the case. Yeah. That- yeah. I mean, if they're sending us out, we're pretty much taking it, um, mm-hmm. but it's more along the lines of leverage for negotiating on liability, you know, really I getting see. a sense of what happened. Uh, but if from time to time, like we will have to like make a phone call <laughs> to the attorney going, did you know about this? Like before they have this person sign this retainer. And they're like, no, get the heck out of there. <laughs> so yeah. Happens. So I, I actually heard you talk about this on somebody else's podcast. I don't remember which one it is, which is unfortunate because I would plug it. Um, but you mentioned kind of how you've positioned yourself where, yes, you're the investigator, but you're also kind of helping sell the attorney services to the individual involved in the accident. Um, is that unique to you? Is that kind of talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was, I think it was John Hoda's podcast. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. There's so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it's almost like by nature, because what happens is when somebody has an accident, they're usually not just calling one attorney. They're usually calling like three or four and, um, yeah, they may not be a hundred percent, even if they schedule that appointment with you, they're not a hundred percent. So, you got to create a comfort level when you're meeting with these people as to how, why they made the right decision. Um, so a couple of things, you got to be familiar with the firm you're representing, right? So you need to go to their website, read about their uh, big verdicts, read about, you know, the attorneys that work there, if they're involved in any, you know, social issues like fundraising or, or things like that, like have a personal story. Uh, like, yeah, I know this attorney, he's a, you know, we've been doing business with him for a couple of years. And, you know, do you know that he also has a nonprofit organization that raises money for St. Jude, you know, like stuff like that, right? Just being able to make it more personable, creating that comfort level with somebody, you know, and this is what I train my people to do. You know, it's never just get in and get out, you know, don't get in and get the paperwork signed and get out. You want to make, create that comfort level and that customer service level. And I, I relate my own experiences of dealing with the firm you know, I've been working with them for, you know, 10 years, you know, and I, I, they pay their bills to me every month. Right. So you can see how they take care of the small vendors that they do business with, you know, that that's the type of mentality you have there. Or I had another firm that, you know, you know, they treat their employees really well with their 401k benefits. Like they do extra distribution and stuff like that. Um, and I know this because I have lunch with the the owner of the firm, right? So it's not I'm not saying something that's not true. It's just something I've developed with my relationship that I can use that as a sales technique, you know, to make me feel comfortable. So do you think that that's what 
well, let's just be specific. So who are your clients and what are they looking for when they're asking you to go out and do these things? That's a great question. Um, So I decided very early on that I was really going to create that boutique business and just focus in on plaintiff personal injury attorneys. It was a natural progression for me because I worked in-house for somebody. Mm -hmm. So I knew you know, the nuts and bolts of what it took to get those cases going. So I had an advantage, um, being able to write, ask the right questions during that initial interview, because I knew that I knew the answer or the, I knew the questions that were coming that needed answers. So if I could ask them at the intake, it would make the attorney's job easier that way. So I made that decision very early on plaintiff only. Um, when I started, yeah, I worked for defense, but it was less than a year. It was just, it wasn't a right fit for me. Um, I, I really, uh, I think like a personal injury attorney on the plaintiff side. So it just made more sense for me. So then why do you think they continue to hire you instead of other, other firms? Yeah. Another great question. Uh, so what sets my, uh, my company aside from other companies is the fact that we are plaintiff only and we, we do understand that uh, aspect to it. And I am a big supporter of the uh, New York State Trial Lawyers Association. So anybody that's an investigator should definitely, like if you want to work with attorneys, you should definitely get involved with the local bar and show up to their events and um, support them. I support it financially. I, I pay a monthly fee to support these this organization so I can get invited to the events. Uh, yeah. And it's worth every penny. I was just talking with my wife about this actually like two days ago. And she's like, oh my God, like, why are you, why are you spending that money? I'm like, you realize I'm making like 20 times the amount of what I spend, right? <laughs> right. Like, oh, okay. Very, um, very good investment. Yeah. So, so just being, being there. And I think they hire me because they know that uh, it's, this is my domain knowledge, right? This is my space. And that I know the right questions to ask. And at the end of the day, how can I help them get resolution on their matter in a uh, efficient way? Right. And, and because we're so knowledgeable about what they need, they continue to go back to us. And uh, Leah, like probably the number one reason that they, I, I get the callbacks is I answer my phone 24 seven. I am accessible. I chose this life, right? I chose to, to, to make myself accessible like that. So when the phone rings at, at 10 30 and they've got a huge case, you know, you got to pick that phone up. And it's that accessibility that's, that sets you and it's, it's results. And by results, I don't mean because you got them, you know, uh, exactly what they were looking for, but you, you answered the question. That's the result, right? And sometimes it's not the answer they want to hear, but it's answering the question. So what do these cases look like and how are you still performing these types of investigations post COVID? Or I don't know if it's post COVID. I think we're still in it, but you know what I mean? I like your uh, optimism. I'll take your Okay. <laughs> Um, it, it definitely changed things. Um, so I am part of our, our, um, state association. I'm on the board. And, um, when, when COVID hit and, you know, they had the shelter in place, which by the way, I had no idea what that meant a year ago. Um, yeah, I'd never heard the term before. Um, but when they came in, we said, okay, so we need to make sure that our investigators, that our security guard people in our state our essential services. And we went to our lobbyists and uh, our lobbyists confirmed it with uh, the governor's office that we were indeed in essential services. So that allowed us to be out there. But then as a business owner, I got to take uh, you know into consideration the safety of my employees. Do I want them out there? You know, and there were definitely, there were times where I had to turn work down. Oh, I need you to go have this lady sign this release for this settlement. 
great. No problem. Oh, um, she's got COVID. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm like, would you go do it? No, that's why I'm calling you. I'm like, don't ever call me again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Oh my gosh. No. Yeah. So like I had a couple of those. Um, so, um, in New York state, they made it possible to do, um, a DocuSign for notaries. Um, so there's an executive order that's in place and they keep extending it actually. And it's been a blessing and a curse for us because it has allowed us to do in witness interviews online, right? It's allowed us to do intakes online, it's allowed us to notarize documents and you have to follow the stipulations or what is in place, which is great. You know, we're able to get work done, but it's also taken work away from us because an attorney goes, Oh, why should I hire the investigator to go and do it when I can just DocuSign, just email them, you know, the, the work to do. And it's sufficient enough for them. So it's, it's been a blessing and a curse, but definitely we had a pivot and there were times where, you know, even though we were essential services, we weren't out doing it. Now, when we go and we meet with people, they're precautions, you know, all my people, they're wearing their, um, you know, protective uh, equipment and, uh, you know, we try and schedule meetings outdoors when the weather's good. And um, I, one of the things I implemented actually is doing a majority of the in, initial meeting over the phone and then schedule an appointment to basically go sign documents. So our exposure to other people is maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. Are you doing any of those as video calls or is it mainly phone calls? Um, yeah. I mean, it, mostly phone calls, uh, unless we're doing DocuSign. If we're doing DocuSign, then it, it does need to be documented uh, via video. Um, but New York is a one-party state too. So, um, but we, you know, typically do a lot of phone work anyways. And when I say one-party state, basically what I mean is that if you're recording the conversation, only one person needs to know that the conversation is being recorded. So like for witness statements, we, we always do that regardless. Cause I don't know what a person's going to say. They may give me everything I need for my statement, but say, I'm not going to sign anything. Um, or say later on, I never said that I had that happen to me once. Or I took a statement from somebody and they're like, I didn't say any of that stuff. It's like, okay, let's go to the tape. <laughs> yeah. You know? And that's what they did. You know, they, they literally played, played my interview. And uh, the guy was saying like, I never gave him a copy of the statement and you can hear me and say, okay, um, I'll, I'll mail you a copy of the statement. And the guy says, no, 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 I have a copy right here. And you literally hear the copy machine <laughs> running in the audio. <laughs> Guy totally perjured himself. It was fantastic. And this was in court, like he was testifying, he was testifying when this in happened. Court, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was hilarious. Um, okay, so let's jump over into accident site photography. You mentioned it a couple of times, but how does that fit into your plan of work? So very early on, I was introduced to a gentleman that basically does that for a living. He does trial photography exhibits and and um I'm sorry, blow ups. And he does trial photography. And, um, when I was starting my business, he said, I have a lot of overflow and I need somebody to cover my extra work. I'll train you how to do what I do. And he literally took me under his wing as a mentor. And, um, you know, we, he was able to, um, to train me on, on doing what, you know, the right way, the right things to do. So it was very, very instrumental. Yeah. So do you have any case examples of when you like a good example of using this? Yeah. Um, well, we'll, we'll talk about site investigations. So basically it's really, really important to send an investigator out to an accident site within the 30 day limit, right? Cause there could be pot potentially be video that you want to be able to get access of, um, you know, light patterns are sometimes an issue. And I had a case many, many years ago. This may have been actually before I started, before I actually started uh, my business. So I was working for the attorney and um, 
uh, probably less than a year. And he said, I'm coming up for trial in this case. And I need you to go to this particular intersection in the Bronx. And uh, he gave me the version of what his client said happened. And when I got there, it was completely different. So basically, there's a train uh, trestle that breaks up the north and south traffic. And uh, this this gentleman had uh, essentially made a turn to go up the, he thought he was going up the northbound lane of traffic, but he was actually going up the southbound lane of traffic. So he said he had the green light and there was no green light for him to have because there was no traffic light where he was trying to make this turn for him. There was a traffic light for, for the southbound traffic, but he was making the turn to go, to go north. So basically he was heading the wrong way down a one-way street and, and had a horrific accident and major injuries. And he turned, he's like, I'm going to court next week. Go take photos and videos of, of the intersection. And when I got out there and did the inspection, I'm like, you're going to lose your case. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what you think happened didn't happen. And it had, I, I wasn't working for him at that time, but um, had he sent somebody out right away, he would have found out right away that, that it was, uh, you know, there, this is not a case to, to take. So um, I think he was, he was lucky in the fact that the insurance company was offering, you know, peanuts. They were offering about 10% of what he was looking for. And he just took the 10% <laughs> and had a change of heart and, uh, you know, called it a day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've had crazy, uh, experiences with photos. Um, I, there were a, a time that I was doing nursing home litigation, so I'd have to go to morgues and photograph remains. And that was always a challenge, you know, you have one, one shot to do it and making sure that you get what you get. Oh, and by the way, you know, you can, can't be afraid of dead people or if you're right. in the ME's office, someone's going to be running a saw and pulling intestines out and you, you got to be okay with that. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was okay. yeah. Had you, had you experienced that before, before you started? No. Or was it like somebody asked you to do it and you, you've got your own business and you're like, well, I'll figure it out. I'll go yeah, down there. Okay. Well, pretty much. I mean, I called my mentor and said, Hey, you know, I need to do this. Like what's the right way to do it. And I, mm-hmm. I remember actually, probably like within the first two or three months of me opening my business, my mentor calls me and says, I need you to cover an assignment for me. I was like, okay, well, what do you need me to do? He goes, you got to go to the burn unit at Westchester Medical Center. Um, there was a guy who was involved in an accident on a bridge. Um, they, he got rear-ended by a truck. It caught on fire. He caught on fire and he jumped off the bridge and into the water and he lived but he's got burns over 80% of his body. So I need you to go to Westchester Medical Center to their burn unit. And I need you to photograph his dressing changes. And Leah, that was probably one of the hardest things I ever did because this man was alive and he was in excruciating pain and he was screaming at the top of his lungs. And um, I had one, one chance to, to get it right. You know, and here I am like faking it till I make it right. Uh, like I'm using this equipment. I don't really know how to use too well. And uh yeah, I prayed real hard before going in there. Like, God, please, I got one chance. And uh, it ended up working out. Um, uh, the guy lived, actually. Um, and I know the case is over. I don't know how much he got. But, uh, yeah, it was it was really something that stays with you. And there's, you know, every now and then you'll see videos of accidents and you'll, wa- you know, you'll watch it and you're just like, well, I wish I didn't see that. Uh, I've had a few of those. Um, yeah, definitely something to consider uh, if somebody's thinking, oh, accident site photography and plaintiff's work. This sounds cool. Like definitely consider that because um, I always approach it as like a scientific 
way, you know, like yeah. I, I try and disassociate myself with it, even I hear the remains of somebody or, or whatever, but you know, uh, or you go to a car, you know, like where somebody, there's a fatality there. And it's like, you look at this car and you, 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 this like, okay, this was the last few minutes of this person's life, you know, and you're looking through and going, well, the car was messy, <laughs> all the place. Like, you know, oh, here's a Shania Twain album. Like, you know, they listen to Shania Twain, like that, that, that kind of stuff always like fascinates me, you know, who was yeah. this person, you know, um, stuff you come across. We'll be right back. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement. So each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, workmanforensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, workmanforensics.com. Welcome back to my interview with Matt Spare. So I want to circle back to a few things you just mentioned uh, in those stories. First of all, you mentioned light patterns. What are you uh, talking about when you say light patterns? Yeah, so basically you've got traffic lights that sometimes have turning arrows. Okay. And depending on how they're set, you know, when does that turning arrow come? Is it before the opposite traffic comes or after they come and they're supposed to stop? Uh, what happens a lot of time is, uh, you know, folks say they had a green turn arrow. And they really had a, like a solid green and they're making a left-hand turn. Yes, they have a green light, but they're also supposed to yield to traffic in the opposite direction. So now there's a comparative negligence aspect to it that you have to understand. Um, that happens a lot, actually. So, you know, making sure that you're, uh, you know, recording the light sequence is definitely something above and beyond, right? You're not just going out and taking photos because literally they could send Jim from the mailroom to go and take photos. But if, if Jim doesn't understand, you know, how a car accident, the mechanics of how it works and what's important, he's not going to do the job right. And that's one, another reason why I get calls to do this stuff, because, you know, I've got 25 years experience doing this kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. So you also mentioned like looking in the car and um, I'm just wondering, how do you like, okay, if, if you get called out immediately, do you ever, well, I mean, that's a better question. Do you ever get called out immediately and like the car is still at the site itself or at the scene itself, or is it typically in an impound lot or, or something? Yeah. Usually it's at an in, impound lot at that particular time. I know there, there are folks that are, are like accident reconstructionists that mm -hmm. insurance companies, like especially tractor trailer cases, they're literally like on retainer for, you know, big Mac up. I need you to come up here like right away. No, I'm, by the time I'm getting involved, it's usually been towed somewhere. 
um, okay. and they're, uh, they're doing something, but the implement of social media and using, you know, apps that are available to find out what it looked like at the time, something like citizen has been a game changer, right? If yeah. you, you have a major accident and citizen sends out an alert and now there are people reporting on what happened, you know, I'm watching videos and I'm seeing positions of vehicles, you know? So it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's very cool. Yeah. The technology definitely, if you know what to look for, can help you. Yeah. I was wondering, is there, a, is there anybody collecting those types of things or are you having to like, I'm thinking of the uh, when there was black ice in Dallas just a few weeks ago, uh, or I guess by the time this airs, it'll be a couple months ago. And there was like a crazy pile up. And I mean, you know, a bunch of people caught that on video um, that was just on the news station. But is anybody collecting that information and kind of making it a database? Well, if they were um, if an investigator was retained early on, you know, they're pulling all that stuff down, archiving it. Um you know, a citizen is, is difficult. If you're not there quick enough, you could, you could lose. It definitely expires. Uh, mm-hmm. You got to be within a few days to, to find it. Um, okay. And that's not, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be, you could go back, you know, a month or, 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 two, or two months even and get and find stuff. But I'm finding like they changed their, their platform a bit that if you're not doing it like right away, it's very difficult to, to get it. Um, something else you mentioned is your mentor. Um, how and you may have mentioned this earlier when you were talking about photography, but how did you, um, you know, just for somebody who may be looking for a mentor, I mean, how did this work out in your career? Yeah. I mean, if you can find somebody that can teach you how to do something, I mean, definitely, uh, you want to have that, that relationship. And this guy wasn't an investigator. And what was nice was because he, he, had been in the same industry as me and would get the calls of, I need some investigative work done. He'd be like, yeah, yeah I'm not an investigator. Call Matt. And he would basically just funnel them to me and I'd, I'd have to pay my tribute. You know, <laughs> we worked on a deal and uh, everybody was happy, you know, so it was, uh, it was good. So yeah, finding a mentor is really, really important. I, I would suggest like, if you're just getting into this industry, it, whether you be a, a CFE or, or a private investigator or an executive protection guy or girl, um, if this is, you know, your passion, what you want to do, get involved with your state associations, get involved with national associations, you know, like NCISS or NALI or, or NALI actually have to have experience to be uh, a part of, but NCISS is a, is a good one. Um, and, and really pick the brains of, um, of folks. Um, so I, I have a, a site uh, that I use called investigators toolbox. It's something uh, I came up with um, recently. And basically it's one of those networking aspects. And it's great for new investigators. I always get excited when new investigators join because I'm giving them exposure to some of the, the thought leaders within our industry. Not only is it training that you're getting out of it, but you're actually, these these people that do the training are also members of the site too. And you can friend request them and, and basically pick their brain on things too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we were working a case now that I am really thankful for the mentors that I've had. And not that I've had like one you know, it's like just kind of for a season, somebody's helping me on something, but then maybe I've worked with somebody else on another case or maybe even from the podcast and reach out to them and say, Hey, can I run this by you? And that's been invaluable in my career. And, um, I know, so through the investigators toolbox, I'm glad you mentioned that here. I wanted to make sure we talked about that. Um, and also the ACFE has a mentoring program and I had a few people request this year. This was the first year they had requested. And, I thought, oh gosh, I do not have time to do this. What are you talking about? Um, but it's been really rewarding. I highly recommend that program as well. It's also been kind of nice to see 
whenever from sitting in the mentor seat, when we have these calls, it's really interesting to see or to like remember, oh yeah, I used to not know these things. And, you know, cause it seems it's just my life now. And so that's been really interesting on these types of cases, just from the like class action stuff I work, you know, the attorneys are footing the bill uh, and then they're going to get paid based off of what they collect. So is that the case here? And if so, when in that process can a private investigator expect to kind of be paid and, and how does that work? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So basically what happens in New York anyways, is the fee structure is set at uh, 33 and a third. Uh, so the way it used for to- For the attorneys. Yeah, for the attorneys. So, so the way it used to be structured and they changed it uh, probably about four years ago. No, it's longer than that now. I think it's probably closer to six or seven. Um, it used to be, they would lay out the expenses for investigations, court costs, medical records, anything like that, they would recover those expenses at the end. And then the one third fee would be based upon the remaining amount of money. That's the way it used to be. So Mm -hmm. when they changed it, they said, you're going to recover all your expenses. So the attorney will recover everything they've laid out, investigative costs, medical records, so on and so forth. But the one third fee is based on the full amount of the settlement. So if, if the attorney was getting a hundred thousand dollars, I'll just throw it out there because the math is easy. They spent 10 grand on expenses. They'll recover their 10 grand, but their one third fee would be based on a hundred thousand, not 90. So why that's important for the investigator is it's not coming out of the attorney's pocket. So they're more willing to actually spend money to work a case up because it could get them more money, uh, get a a higher value, but they're also not losing the money of the, the investment. It's coming out of the actual client's uh, pocket. Now, what happens is if there's no settlement or an award, um, the client is not responsible for repaying that money. So what, if we're saying 110000 of that is settlement, if you lose the case, that $10,000, the attorney eats it, um, which is why they're allowed to charge 33 and a third because there are plenty of times they lay money out and they don't get anything from it. Right. So then are your fees or in I don't know if this is standard or not in your area, but are your fees like hourly, fixed fee? Do you get paid up front? Do you get paid when the attorneys get paid? Well, if I got paid when the attorneys got paid, I'd be out of business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> most Same. of the time it's- I'm just setting you up, you know, all the different possibilities. Yeah. It's usually about five years, you know, from three to five years to, to yeah. resolve a case. Um, and we obviously don't collect interest on any of that stuff. So uh, I have found in this industry, trying to collect interest is a waste of time. Oh, for <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. I, I have a pretty standard agreement with every attorney I work with paid in 30 days. And what I started doing about a year or two ago was uh, start taking credit cards. And basically I would keep the card on file and uh, if you if they were comfortable paying a check, it's like okay, you can send me a check. But at day thirty one, I'm I'm banging your card if I don't have, you know, if I don't have a check in hand. So um, I got to say, my receivables are pretty impressive. I don't really have too much that's over thirty days, um, and that has come uh, over years of just you know having experience of of building relationships. And I know I'm going to get paid. Um, and um, blacklisting people that uh, <laughs> that uh, that won't pay, you know, because every now and then you do get that stuff, and uh, it's like, okay, I'm one and done. I'm never going to work with you again. Yeah, it, our receivables changed when I started accepting credit cards. 
game changer. Big because game changer. I don't, I'm not a finance company. Yeah. You know? And, and so, what, what attorneys don't realize in New York is that they can pass the uh, the administrative charge. So whatever it is that credit card fees charge you, they can pass that along to their client. Mm-hmm. If you're paying 3% interest or whatever, and you're billing your, your client that 3% for charging on credit cards, they can pass that along to their clients. So sometimes having that conversation with them makes them more agreeable to doing a credit card thing. Like I have clients and it's great. The first of the month, boom, settle the invoice out, keep it moving. You know, that as a small business owner, if you've got that model of, you know, six people or under, that's a, a big deal. You know, knowing that you're getting money on the first every month is is a huge deal. Right. And then I've had, you know, some consultants and stuff say, oh, I'd rather you just pay ACH, you know, not credit card. And I don't know about you, Matt, but I just increased my fees by 3%. I mean, I would rather get paid timely and make it easy for people to pay. But that's just, I mean, my personal opinion. But just work that into my fee structure where it's not, um, you know, I don't add it on where I think that's annoying. Even if I'm in a retail shop and they say, or the government and they're like, well, we now have to charge you a processing fee. I'm like, just work it into the fee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're getting it now with the the, the COVID uh, restoration fees. Well, you go out to restaurants, they're automatically charging an extra tax now. Uh, yeah. On everything. Yeah. Just add it in. Yeah. We wouldn't have known. <laughs> like just- so, uh, so here, here's, here's the thing, right? I, I agree with you on that too. But also, um, Sometimes I think, at least my experience anyway, has been, you know, to, to do that. So basically what I started doing is I implemented about a year ago, a, a $50 charge on all my invoices that covers administrative costs and report writing. Cause I used to never, oh, yeah. that. I was just built mm-hmm. to whatever, but I'm obviously paying my people to, to write reports. So I was like, I got to change this model. And not one of my clients complained about an extra $50 per invoice. And, um, I, I gotta say, man, it, it, it generated probably about $65,000 worth of extra income for the year. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You don't think about it. When you start doing the numbers, you're like, wow. And, and it's like, okay, if somebody complains about it, let's have a conversation and maybe I'll up my hourly. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I like fees like that. I know we don't normally don't talk about this on my podcast, but I, I don't mind fees like that where it's the same for everybody. It's when, oh, if you pay me through ACH, it's this much, but if you pay oh, me yeah, yeah. check or you pay me through credit card, now you have to pay 3% more. I just think lump it in, it you know, just, <laughs> you end up being Monty yeah, like just keep it simple because, um, I don't know, just as a business owner, why do I want to mess with that anyway? I have to remember if I'm going to increase it or decrease it, <laughs> just, uh, cut the administrative costs. So you have time to work on more cases. That's, you know, uh, that's how I feel about that. All right. So, uh, before we wrap up, is there an investigation or a case that you'll never forget that you would want to share with us? Well, I was trying to think about uh, a scenario because I figured you'd probably ask me about a case. So I was like, all right, if Lee's going to ask me about something, what would I want <laughs> to talk about? And I kept coming back to a fraud related case that I thought was just hilarious. So there was this guy who probably had about five or six accidents and or in injuries. Okay. He just kept getting injured and he kept hiring different law firms. And I happened to come across this guy probably about three times for different. And essentially what this guy was doing is he was borrowing money on his cases. So he would like have to have surgery and, um, he would sign up with a law firm and he'd create this, this horrible, uh, you know, emergency situation where his mother had died and he needed like money for funeral costs <laughs> and he was borrowing money against the case. And like, by the third time I look at the dude, I'm like, how many times is your mother going to die, dude? <laughs> like seriously. Yeah. 
Uh, and it was one of those situations where oh, I called the attorney from outside. I excused myself and said, I got to go outside for a second and call the attorney. And I called the guy and said, listen, this guy, something's up because I've, this is now the third time I'm seeing him. Yeah. It's, it's a different industry injury than it was last time. I think it's like an ankle and last time was a knee, but it's the same song and dance. Like something stinks here. And the, you know, you can look and see uh, if someone's had or has cases open and you can also look and see if they're, um, if there's money attached, so if they borrowed money on it, right? So the attorney did a quick search and, and saw that this guy had all these uh, liens against his other cases. And he's like, yeah, we're going to keep moving on this one. So, Oh my goodness. So, okay. Just to make sure I understand. So he would have some sort of injury? Yeah. I mean, the injuries were legitimate. I, I don't know if the dude threw himself down the stairs or whatever, yeah. but you know, then- he was tripping and they were never car. Well, well, actually one was a car accident. I think the other three were, were tripping falls. Wow. So, okay. So he'd have this injury. He hires a law firm. So he's got a lawsuit out there. And then because it's like a plaintiff's case where, you know, they should collect some sort of money, he would then use that as collateral to borrow money for whatever yeah. he so there's a big business of, of money lending companies that will fund yeah. your money against your cases. They charge ridiculous interest rates. I mean, like yeah, really yeah. like you, you, for every $1,000 you're buying, you're probably uh, paying 4,000 to get that money. You're fine. Yeah. Um, wow. so, yeah. And then he's just, you know, taking all this money and then running. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's very huh. interesting. That is, I have not run across that. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one, Matt. Thanks for sharing. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. And if any of our listeners would like to connect with you or learn learn more about your work and also the Investigators Toolbox, what is the best way to do so? Well, I am all over social media. And if you're an investigator and you can't find me, you're a terrible investigator because (laughs) I'm literally like LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram. I'm all over the place. Uh, You can just search for Investigators Toolbox. Um, if you're not a member of that community, uh, and it's open to uh, more than just investigators, by the way, if you're a certified fraud examiner, you do qualify to join. Um, it's a great networking community. You can really, really learn a lot. There's a lot of information in there, uh, and, and research, uh, OSINT research sources on there. It's, uh, uh, www.investigators-toolbox.com. Definitely check it out. Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to put a link to your LinkedIn profile and investigators toolbox in the show notes. So thank you again. Yeah, this was uh, it was great. I love chatting with you.